Well, uh, good morning to you. My name is Matt Lulloyan. Uh, I serve as the, the pastor of Liberty Church. Uh, joy to um, be with you this morning, uh, even in the privilege that I have of being a leader here in this church and preaching from the Word of God. Um, I myself need uh, the renewal of God's grace that comes when you gather with the people of God, join your voices together in song. So thank you for blessing me. Sitting up front, I get to hear your voices sing over me, uh, which is just a gift uh, to me. So thank you um, for that. And if you have Bibles today, uh, you can go ahead and turn uh, to Matthew chapter 6. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that are under the seats near you, uh, you will find Matthew chapter 6 on page 811 uh, is where we'll be um, today. We've, um, crazy enough, we're only two weeks left in this series that we've been in throughout the fall called Rehearsing the Gospel. Uh, And the main thing that we've been talking about week after week in this series is that you and I are always being formed. We're always being formed into the image of whatever it is that we worship, whatever it is that we devote ourselves to. And as we get to the offering today, I'm talking about the offering, uh, nowhere is this idea more evident than in our money. Our money really reveals our our functional priorities. Uh, Our money reveals our functional beliefs. It reveals the objects of our heart's devotion like few things can. Money really serves as a window, a visible kind of concrete window into what is otherwise often invisible, which is inside the the recesses of our hearts. So the question I want to pursue this morning, consider this morning is, are we seeing what we need to see through that window? Are we seeing in our hearts what we need to see through that window of money? Greed, uh, consumerism, these things hide themselves, Uh, not so much externally, Uh, Because if you ask around, almost everybody that you encounter will tell you that in the society in which you and I live, greed and consumerism and materialism is a huge problem. But then in the same moment, almost no one will admit that they themselves are greedy and consumeristic. So who are all of these money-obsessed people? Who are all of these people? Is it not, at least to some degree, you and I? And, And what are we maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously, what are we devoting ourselves to? What are we being formed uh, into? A hundred years ago, uh, the steel magnate, the philanthropist Andrew Carnegie, uh, he was one of the richest people in the world. Uh, In 1901, when he sold Carnegie Steel to J.P. Morgan, it became then U.S. Steel, 1901, he sold that for $480 million. That amount at that time was a little bit more than 2% of the U.S.'s entire GDP. So if you can imagine that, that'd be like selling a company in one transaction today for about $400 billion. Earlier in his life, when Andrew Carnegie was just 33 years old, he hit a really important crossroads. And in this moment of honest self-reflection, he wrote this note to himself. He said this, Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. There is no idol more debasing than the worship of money. And then talking about himself, to continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond the hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35. He was 33. He was saying, I'm going to resign business in two years. Such a remarkable insight from Andrew Carnegie at this earlier moment in his life. One biographer said that contemporaries of his, like Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, 
wouldn't have had a clue about what he was talking about. Like, wouldn't even have a concept for the idea that maybe he shouldn't just devote himself to amassing more wealth. And yet, as history tells us, Andrew Carnegie didn't quit at 35. He couldn't quit at 35. He saw his problem. He, he looked his problem square in the eyes. He even called it an idol, which is the Bible's term for a false god. But he couldn't stop. And that's because the root of this idol goes so deep that no amount of self-will uh, or discipline or drive, like Andrew Carnegie clearly had, could tear him away from it. And so money and the need to amass more and more wealth kept consuming him for the rest of his life. Because of the, the sheer dollar amount involved with Andrew Carnegie, he becomes an easy target. So more pertinent to us this morning, what about you and me? What about you and me? It's essential for us to pause and consider how we may have become devoted to money and been formed into the image of money. And this is why, really, every time that we gather as the people of God, every time we gather to worship God, part of that worship includes an offering. So you may have thought uh, that we take an offering because the church has bills to pay. And of course, uh, that money that you do give and an offering is used to pay the bills that the church has. But far beyond that, and I would encourage you to think about it this way if you never have before, the offering is a built-in weekly rhythm, a liturgy of rehearsing the gospel, and specifically the gospel truth that everything you and I have, we have received from the hand of God. And that our lives and our hope and our joy is never found in money or possessions, but it's found only in being bound to the God from whom we have received all things. Before we get into this text in Matthew 6 this morning, let me just say this, because I'm sure that many of you are in a variety of places this morning when it comes to money. You hear we're talking about money and an offering. Your mind goes a certain place. Some of you uh, will be prone to guilt. And so every time you hear a sermon or read a book or an article about money, that guilt that kind of wells up in you drives you to, sh to some short-lived initiative of generosity. And if that's you, if that's what you're prone to do, then my prayer for you leading into this morning is that you will find and that God would give you a far better motivation for giving than guilt uh, and one that is actually sustainable beyond these short little bursts of initiative of generosity. Some of you will find yourselves apathetic this morning. Uh, some of you will find yourselves cynical. You know, another church, another pastor talking about money. What's the initiative? What's the campaign that we need to give to my prayer for you, if that's where you find yourself this morning, is that you would see ever so clearly that God is after your heart. He's after your heart and not your money. And I'll say it this way, that it's not about the money. It's about your heart. But precisely because of that, precisely because it's about your heart, it's about the money. And, and I'll explain more about what that means when we get there. Some of you, others of you, will be self-congratulatory. Uh, you hit a certain number of giving. You hit a certain percentage of giving years ago. And you're glad, as you hear this topic come up, you're glad that I'm preaching about money so that everybody else in the room can get their act together too and finally catch up to where, to where you are. My prayer for you today is that God would rip out every remaining ounce of pride, uh, self-righteousness, the self-congratulatory kind of nonsense and show us that even when we hit those numbers, if we're self-congratulatory, then almost certainly we still are mastered by money. We still are devoting ourselves to wealth. All of us 
for all of us, regardless of where you find yourself in that. Uh, my prayer is that God would, would form us more into the image of Christ, specifically in the way that we view and use our money, that we would be conformed more and more into his image and into his likeness. So I invite you to listen now with open ears uh, to this book that we love. This is Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Eternal God, in the reading of your word, in the reading of scripture, May your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Amen. Uh, this is, if you're familiar with, with Scripture, and it's particularly the Gospel of Matthew, uh, this is a part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And if you're looking uh, to be affirmed in the way you live every aspect of your life, I would recommend you just skip this part of the Bible. Um, it is hard, uh, convicting words, and therefore, some of the most purifying, joy-producing words in all of Scripture. In this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is teaching about money, he contrasts three different sets of two. And maybe you heard this as we read. There's two treasures, there's two eyes, and there's two masters. So we're going to talk a little bit about each of those this morning. Two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. First, let's talk about the two treasures. Jesus contrasts uh, what he calls treasures on earth with treasures in heaven. And money is this concrete indicator of what we really value. Right? We, we spend money on the things that we value. We chase after money to use it or to save it, whatever be the case, based on what we really think is important. A survey of, of all of Scripture tells us that money is not just meant for one specific use. So when we come in today, you're thinking about the offering. Uh, you might be thinking, I'm going to primarily talk about the money we give away to others. That's one use of money. But a survey of Scripture tells us that it's not just meant for one specific use. There are a number of ways to use your money that will be consistent with what Jesus calls laying up treasures in heaven. One is to provide food and shelter and clothing for yourself and for your family. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that anyone who does not do that, actually, is denied the faith. So part of God's provision for you and for me, financially, is that we would then provide for ourselves and for our own households these things we need to live. Another way to use money is to save. Um, part of God's provision for us tomorrow is that he has provided for us today and has called us to save some portion of that. Proverbs chapter 6 uh, rebukes, it calls him the sluggard, the lazy person, and calls the sluggard to be more like an ant who gathers food in the summer and during harvest so that when the winter comes, they don't starve and they have something in those moments. So saving 
is good. Generally speaking, uh, having a savings account, having things like retirement accounts, having things like insurance, those are good. They're not just permissible ways uh, to use money. They're actually wise ways to use money. The problem, of course, is that we, we get carried away, which is why Jesus also tells us parables like the one about, about the rich fool who builds bigger barns to store his abundant possessions only to have his life demanded of him that very same night. So saving is wise, but what Jesus' parable illustrates there is that it does not give you control or security in your life, despite the illusion that it might create to the contrary. Jesus says here, lay up treasure in heaven where moths, where rust can't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. Now in their day, uh, moths and rust were a real problem that would maybe destroy the physical money, the gold, silver, things like that that would destroy the wealth. In our day, we're not so much concerned about uh, moths or rust, but maybe we are concerned about inflation or a stock market crash or some form of economic depression. And you and I, we still have thieves uh, to worry about, although that thief today is more likely to be a 20-year-old at a computer uh, than it is an armed person that shows up at your door demanding you give them some money. The point being, you can and should be wise with money in this life, but your money and your wealth in this world is always susceptible to loss. It's always susceptible to loss. Another way to use money, and one that I think we don't talk about quite enough, particularly in more um, theologically conservative circles, another great way to use money is to enjoy God's good gifts. James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. 1 Timothy 4, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, you can go overboard uh, with this one in a hurry, and people often do, but as you're able, and according to your means, you should use some of your money to enjoy the good gifts of God. Have some good meals. Open a bottle of wine if that's something you enjoy doing. Uh, throw a good party. Take a, a trip, take a vacation, see some part of the world that you haven't seen yet, of course, within your means and as you're able. It's a good thing to enjoy the good gifts of God with some of that money he's provided. And the last one I'll mention, which is the main point of the offering, you have some of the money you have in order to give it away, uh, in order to bless and to serve other people. Um, some of that you will give away very directly through your own hospitality. You'll invite people into your home, you'll feed them, you'll clothe them, you'll help them in some way. Some of that you'll give away more indirectly by giving it to the church, uh, by giving it to missionaries and other organizations that serve great causes both locally and globally. But as one pastor puts it, and I love this terminology, your money, one of the things your money is meant to do is meant to be mission ammunition with which you can blow big holes in the gates of hell. Don't you love that imagery? I love that imagery. Your money is mission ammunition with which you can blow big holes in the gates of hell. It's important to do this quick survey of what money is used for because Jesus here in Matthew 6 is not prohibiting having and using money. What is Jesus prohibiting here? What is he warning his disciples about? He's warning them about the accumulation of wealth that anchors your soul in, the, in this life rather than in the life to come, that orients your heart to this earth rather than the world to come, and that anchors your confidence in the material wealth itself rather than the God of heaven and earth from whom you've received it. 
So when it comes to money, I'm guilty of this. I'm guessing that many of you are too. We ask the wrong question. We ask the wrong question. What's the question that always comes to mind when we think about money? How much? Isn't that what we always want to know? Bottom line, how much do I need to give away to be faithful? How much of, it, how much of my money giving that away is enough? And I'll give you the gospel answer to that question. The gospel answer to that question is that there is no number that you or I or Andrew Carnegie or anyone else could hit that would be enough. Because by asking that question first, it demonstrates that our starting point and our reference point is myself. And if that's the case, then even if you were to give away 100% of your money and wealth, all you would do at the end of that is pat yourself on the back for being the most generous person in the world. And you would treasure your own generosity rather than God. So the primary question is never how much. It's what do you treasure? Who do you treasure? And instead of starting with yourself, start by perceiving, by glimpsing it in whatever way you might be able to glimpse it in this moment, the eternal redemptive work of God. Because that is really the only thing that gives shape and meaning and purpose to the things that I have and the things that I do in this life. And what Christians believe is that because we treasure Jesus and his eternal work, it's not that just we set aside and use some small amount of money as a token of gratitude to God. We actually use all of that money in different specific ways, providing, saving, enjoying, and giving. We use all of our money to demonstrate that Christ is our treasure. You hear how that's such a different paradigm? I think often in the church we're guilty of saying, well, I just need to give away like 10% and set that aside. That's God's money. The other 90% is mine. All of it is God's money. All of it is. And he's called you to use it in a variety of ways, all of which point to the reality that he is the greatest treasure. So when you spend, uh, when you save, when you enjoy God's good gifts, and when you give that money away to blow big holes in the gates of hell, all of that is God's money. All of that are part, is part of laying up treasures for yourself in heaven. And just as a practical note, if that's a new paradigm for you, then I would encourage you the next time you sit down with your budget, use that as your filter and as your question to make decisions. Not how much do I need to give away, but how can I use all of this to more clearly display that God is my greatest treasure? Second, Jesus contrasts two eyes, two eyes, the healthy eye and the unhealthy eye or the bad eye. How we handle money has everything to do with how we see. How we see God, uh, how we see ourselves, how we see this world and our purpose and our place in it. A pastor and an author named John Stott puts it this way. It's all a question of vision. If we have physical vision, we can see what we are doing and where we are going. So too, if we have spiritual vision, if our spiritual perspective is correctly adjusted, then our life is filled with purpose and drive. But if our vision becomes clouded by the false gods of materialism, then our whole life is in darkness and we cannot see where we are going. And I would submit to you this, friends, that if I'm honest, if we're honest, our eyes are unhealthy when it comes to money and materialism. And that's because rather than seeing money through the lenses of Jesus with this healthy eye, what we tend to do instead as Christians is just adopt a cultural view of money, clean it up a little bit, and call that good enough. 
With Thanksgiving just around the corner, uh, this came up a little bit at our staff meeting uh, this past week. You may have noticed um, that it's not just Black Friday anymore that follows Thanksgiving, but every day after Thanksgiving has its own name now. So there's Thanksgiving, uh, then there's Black Friday, then there's Small Business Saturday, then Sunday is nothing yet, but maybe we'll get filled in at some point. Uh, Monday is Cyber Monday, Tuesday is Giving Tuesday, and then Wednesday is now sometimes being referred to as Weeping Wednesday, where you get all the bills from the stuff that you just did the day before. (laughs) On the surface, Giving Tuesday sounds like a great idea. Um, Nonprofits, like churches, need money to run. And, and for tax purposes, churches and nonprofits tend to take in a really significant percentage of their revenue at the end of the year, for end of the year giving purposes. So it makes sense uh, that churches and ministries want to get in on that post-Thanksgiving open wallet spending action. But think about what that forms in us to adopt Giving Tuesday wholeheartedly. It might seem subtle, but is that not hitching our wagon to a corrupted cultural view of money and wealth, which says that as long as you start with gratitude on Thursday and end with giving on Tuesday, you are free to do whatever you want in the days between and give full reign to your materialism, your greed, your consumerism, and your excess, as long as you start with gratitude and end with giving. It's a textbook example of the culture driving the church. And so then, rather than being a prophetic voice against the madness of the materialism that drives the holiday season, we're just clamoring to make sure that we get a day in there too. At least we're then getting in on the action. At least we're benefiting in some way from that. And rather than us giving as a reflection of where my treasure really is, giving money away becomes an attempt to absolve or to justify or to rationalize the madness that I'm participating in over those few days prior. Let me say this. In a couple weeks, week and a half, there will be some great organizations that participate in Giving Tuesday. By all means, be free to give to those organizations and those causes as you are led. But don't ever adopt the world's false narrative of generosity, which is that as long as you give some of your wealth away, you can use the rest however you want. Or as long as you use some of that wealth for the right causes in the right moments, it doesn't really matter how you acquired that wealth in the first place. Andrew Carnegie, and many of you will know this if you're familiar with his life, he gave away a ridiculous amount of money before he died, something like 90% of his wealth. And the list of the things he founded is massive. Like most of the city of Pittsburgh has Andrew Carnegie's name on it somewhere. He built more than 2,000 libraries with that money, for example. Uh, He's known as one of the greatest philanthropists uh, in the history of America. But consider what one of his steelworkers speaking no doubt as a voice for many others, told an interview, an interviewer years ago, a steel worker said this, we didn't want him to build a library for us. We would rather have had higher wages. And then as this, as this author, this biographer explained, at that time, steel workers worked 12-hour shifts every day for two weeks, and then at the end of that two weeks, they would work an inhuman 24-hour shift, and then they would be given one day off, and then they would do it again. The best housing that they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most steel workers died in their 40s, if not earlier, from accidents or disease, from that kind of pace of life and just the environment they were in. This is what happens when your eye is unhealthy. For all your good intentions, if in your view it doesn't matter how you acquire your wealth, so long as you give some of it or even most of it away, 
This is what that looks like. It leads to exploitation and oppression. They didn't want the library. They wanted, they needed higher wages. If the light in you is darkness, Jesus says, how great the darkness. The healthy eye, on the other hand, sees that everything we have is received from the hand of God. And because it is received, precisely because it's received, how we acquire it, how we use all of it, not just the amount that we give away, matters greatly. You can become a a world-class, world-famous philanthropist and still be a servant of money and still treasure things on earth. So what I would plead with you, especially going into this next season, is don't be formed by a culture whose best answer is Giving Tuesday. Don't be formed by a culture who, when they think about generosity, their best answer they come up with is Giving Tuesday. Don't be formed by that. Instead, be formed as a recipient and with a healthy eye, receive from God and treasure God's work above all else. Third and finally, Jesus contrasts two masters. Two masters. In verse 24, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. It's a fairly familiar verse in scripture. You know what the most common response is, even from those of us who believe the Bible and want to follow it? Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted, Jesus. I think I can serve both God and money, and I'm going to try. I'm going to find some way to compromise that where I keep a foot in both camps. But to do that is really to completely miss the image that Jesus is using here in this text. When we read this, our our Western modern sensibilities, we automatically begin to reinterpret this image as if it were an employer-employee relationship. And if that's the image, then, then maybe Jesus is wrong. Because it's very possible, as some of you know right now in your lives, to have more than one employer. Uh, It's possible to divide up your time and your responsibilities and your commitments between one or more employers. But the image here is not employer-employee. It's the image of a slave or a bondservant. In other words, the question is not, who do you work for or how do you divide up your commitments? The question is, who owns you? Who owns you? Because as much as this grates against our independent, autonomous American spirit, the reality is is that we are always owned by someone or something. And Jesus is saying here, you cannot be jointly owned by God and by money. So that's the question for us when we come to this text. Who owns you? Who are you bound to? Is it money or is it really and truly God. Always what we will do is we will use one in service of the other. So if money owns us, then we will attempt to use God to get money, uh, manipulate money, justify how, how we use money. If, on the other hand, God is the one who owns us, if we belong wholly to him, money becomes a tool with which to display uh, that we really treasure God and his work and the kingdom of God above all else. See, we're not just meant to give our money to God. We're meant to give our whole selves to God. We're meant to be bound to God with all that we are. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, at least the abbreviated version, our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own but belong to God. And because these are the stakes, and because as Jesus is saying, you'll either be owned by God or money, we must pay careful attention to our hearts and to what we are being formed in. 
And so as we come to an offering every single week in our service, that action, that offering can never become a mindless automation, can never become a rote and an empty ritual. And I don't have time to go into this in depth as I'd like to, but just a quick word here about tithing. Because some of you are probably wondering, like, what does the church think about tithing? Uh, Here's something of that, at least. Biblically, um, tithing, or giving away 10% of your income to God, um, that's not a finish line. So that's the way we tend to think about it as Christians. Tithing is the finish line. Do what you can to get to 10%. Congratulations, you're there. Actually, let me flip that around for you. Tithing is actually the starting gate. It's actually the starting gate. It's giving the first 10% of what you have, of what you've received from God, back to God. And it's debated, you'll read, there's great books and articles and all kinds of things out there debating these specific points. Whether or not tithing was practiced uh, by Christians in the New Testament, whether or not it should be practiced by us today. Here's the thing, though. Here's what no one argues with. Once Jesus enters into the world and dies and rises from the dead, nowhere do you see the people of God being commended for being less generous than their Old Testament counterparts. They become more generous in response to that further and clearer revelation of Jesus entering into the world, the incarnation of Christ, and then the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's precisely because they don't have to give in order to keep the law that they become free to be even more sacrificial and generous. For some of you, 10% just seems impossible right now. It seems impossible right now. Um, And I get that. I've been there. What I would say to you, what I would what I would say to you without any condemnation over you is that it will always seem impossible until you do it. It just always will. Until you actually do it, it will always seem impossible. There'll always be a reason not to. If you truly can't right now, then what I would implore you to is to give something. Is to give something. And not because the church has bills to pay. That's the least important piece of why I say that. Uh, Not because it makes you a better Christian. Not because it earns some kind of favor or merit for you from God but because you're always being formed, because you're always devoting yourself to someone or something. Give some of that money away as an action of responding to the generosity of God. That's why I say it's not about the money, but it is about the money. God is not after your money, he's after your heart, but because he's after your heart, it is very much about the money. And it's not just those who have great wealth that become enslaved to the master of money. It's those of us that live fairly normal, middle, or upper-middle-class lives. It's those of us who struggle to to pay bills. It's even those who are in incredible poverty just as likely to become devoted to that master of money as the person who has great wealth. If you're a person who has hit uh, 10% of your giving, you tithe 10%, that's encouraging to me. Uh, Praise God for that. That's not an invitation for you to put your life on autopilot. It's not the finish line. And if our giving is meant to reflect what we treasure, then why would we ever want to stop at 10%? God is not content to offer us 10% of himself. Uh, God is not self-congratulatory when he gives us just enough grace to kind of get across the line into his kingdom. Isaiah calls it the inexhaustible well of God's salvation. Paul calls them the immeasurable riches of God's grace. That it's going to take all of eternity for God to pour out the the massive scope and amount of his grace on us. And faithfulness to Jesus, it's not static because life is not static. No one here in this room would say, you know what, my life has been static for like the last 40 years 
Uh, it's not static at all. Life changes, and because of that, faithfulness to Jesus is not static either. So as your circumstances change, as life unfolds, never assume that how you have handled or are handling money is faithful. Because doing that begins to make money this fixed point in your life around which Jesus becomes flexible when Christians, on the other hand, are meant to have Jesus as the fixed point and money to always be flexible around that. And this is why the weekly rhythm of an offering is so important. Because what it does is rather than allow us to coast on autopilot, rather than allowing us to assume faithfulness, it's a regular and constant reorientation to God. It's a regular and constant rehearsal of the gospel. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you truly treasure? Who really is your master? And how can this moment and this act of giving some amount of what you have received from God continue to form you as one who is dependent, as one who truly treasures God and his eternal redemptive work, and as one who is truly bound to God himself? Because here's the, here's the beauty of the offering. And if, you've, if you have so much baggage around this topic in church, you've tuned out like everything else that I've said up to this point, then tune back in for this. What we do each week in giving an offering always follows our commemoration and participation of the offering. That Jesus offered up himself for the life of the world. There's a reason why we only ever take an offering after coming to the Lord's table. And that's because any offering that we give is only ever a response to the offering of Jesus. Before we are ever those who give anything, we are those who receive. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, that you by his poverty might become rich. And if you've stared that idol in the face like Andrew Carnegie did, and you've seen the, the ugliness of that greed and consumerism and materialism in your own heart, the only remedy to uproot that idol is by, is by looking to the one who, though he had everything, though he had the eternal riches of heaven, became nothing for our sake, so that in him we might inherit the riches of God's grace. To look on him and to believe that we really are his treasured possession, that we truly have been bought by that immensely costly gift of the blood of Christ. This is the gospel that we rehearse. So rather than guilt, which will not sustain any kind of generosity in you, rather than apathy or cynicism, rather than self-congratulation, each week when we take an offering, make that for you a rehearsal of the gospel where you look again upon the offering of Jesus. That will make your eye healthy. That will transform your eye from darkness to light that you might see all of life through the lens of Jesus Christ. And with that light in your eyes and that light that permeates all of yourself, it will transform your heart and it will open your hands so that you might both receive the immeasurable riches of God's grace and become more sacrificial and selfless and generous than you ever thought possible. May God do that deep work in each of our hearts. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you have offered up yourself in the, in the offering that we cannot fathom, the cost of which we cannot comprehend. And yet it is our hope. And we acknowledge, Jesus, we are so prone to be shaped by our culture, uh, by our own warped, uh, unhealthy eyes and view of things when it comes to money and wealth and materialism. Forgive us, Jesus, for that. 
We need you to make our eye healthy. We need you to help us to see your generosity, that you pour out the inexhaustible well of your salvation on us, that it never dries up. We need that to be what sustains us, your grace to be what sustains us and our pursuits of generosity. Open our clenched fists this morning that we would see all of the money that we have, not just the money we give away, all of the money we have as yours, all of which being fuel for the kingdom of God, that we would have freedom and joy in the way we use all of it, providing, saving, enjoying, and giving, that all of that, we just have a, a newfound kind of freedom in response to the generosity of Jesus, that all the money we have, we would use in a way that shows definitively, Jesus, that you are our treasure. You are our treasure, Jesus. You have rescued us and purchased us with the cost of your great blood. And we pray this in your name. Amen.